Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Genesis. I'll be reading chapter 40 of the cupbearer and the baker. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody at the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. After they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed and it its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing to deserve, us, to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given him a favourable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hands. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, he forgot him. This is the word of our Lord. Well, thank you again for allowing me to come and share from God's word. It's a real privilege to be here. I haven't been here since Joel was inducted, so 
Um, it's great to gather together and worship again. I'm going to pray before we look at uh, this next stage of Joseph's life, so please pray with me. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for the gift of your word, uh, Jesus, and also your recorded word in the Bible. Lord, we pray now that as we open this story together that you might, through your spirit, teach us new things, encourage us and challenge us, and affirm in us once again your faithfulness in all things. Amen. Well, I know that you've been working through uh, Genesis and the life of Joseph, and uh, here we've kind of come to an interesting section of Joseph's story. Joseph once again uh, finds himself in danger and in a pit of sorts in prison. But uh, I've kind of come in mid-story. You guys have been working all the way through from Genesis 37 and I've kind of landed smack bang in the middle of uh, this event in chapter 40 and we also find Joseph kind of mid-story as well. And uh, so I was, as I was thinking about what I would share, I thought, what does faith look like for Joseph in the middle of his story? What can we learn about God? How can we be encouraged about our own situation? When you think about stories, sometimes stories grip us and get us involved in things. I wonder when it was the last time the last story or TV show that you got so involved in that you couldn't put the book down or had to keep watching, uh, what do they call it when you just binge, binge watch on a TV show? Um, I wonder what that's the last time that uh, was for you. And I was trying to think, for me, one of the times uh, was a long time ago now when I finished high school. Um, I went away on holidays and somehow I got in right into Robert Ludlum books. He's a guy who wrote The Bourne, um, Supremacy and Ultimatum and Identity and many, many other ones. I think in a week, I think I read eight Robert Ludlum books. That's excessive. It's not healthy. Um, but I was at this place where I just had to keep on reading and keep on reading uh, because uh, in the way that he wrote, kind of gripped you and you wanted to know what happened next. In a way, Joseph's story is much, much better than a Robert Ludlum book. This has been a roller coaster so far, hasn't it? We've had Joseph kind of telling his brothers off, being sold into slavery, well, chucked into a pit first, sold into slavery. Last week, he had the whole event with Potiphar's wife and that household. And here now, we come to the next stage of the story, this roller coaster narrative. In terms of narrative structure, I used to be an English teacher, so this kind of stuff interests me. Uh, forgive me if it doesn't interest you. But uh, a lot of people have written about how a narrative is supposed to work. So Aristotle did, and some 19th century German novelist called Freitag did, created this system. And even people who've looked at uh, the Bible have thought about how narratives work to get us engaged, to get us thinking to get us wanting to go all the way through to the end. In plays, it's often the third act where the tension builds. Think, what is going to happen? Critical incidents happen that maybe then will shape the rest of the plot. They want us, they make us want to keep on reading to find some resolution, to feel at peace. 
And here we have in the story of Joseph another twist and another turn. It's like we're at the top of the roller coaster, ready to go back down. What is going to happen to Joseph? In Genesis chapter 40, we have this crisis moment with the narrative structure of Joseph's story. He is in prison, unfairly imprisoned. If you remember from last week, he doesn't deserve to be there. What's going to happen? On a broader scale, what's going to happen to God's plan for Joseph, God's plan for his people? Uh, What is in danger here? Last week, uh, Joel reminded you guys, I listened to the sermon, that uh, even though things were at crisis point, God was very much present with Joseph. In fact, in chapter 39, four times the narrator says that uh, God, Yahweh, was with Joseph. In fact, right at the very end of chapter 39, if you remember the last very verse of it, said, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Chapter 39 reminds us of Jesus' presence, but I wonder, um, God's presence, but I wonder if you noticed a remarkable difference in chapter 40. Hardly any mention of God at all. Where is God in this chapter? Joseph talks about God, but uses a different term, Elohim, when he's talking about God being the interpreter of dreams. But God seems pretty absent, maybe, in this chapter. Here is Joseph, held in a dungeon, somewhere in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. He's still in that house. He's in prison somewhere, but what's going to happen? Is God actually present? In the short time I've got, I just want to touch on three different things that we might discover from this chapter, from the middle of the story, what Joseph's mid-story faith is like. And the first thing I want to look at is the wisdom that comes from God. This story, uh, there's a lot of time spent to uh, outline the two dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. These uh, dreams propel the action forward, just as Joseph's dream in chapter 37 propelled those events, and the dream that Pharaoh has in chapter 41 will continue to propel the narrative. Here we have the cupbearer and the baker. If you have an old version of the Bible, it might say the butler and the baker, uh, propel the action by their dreams. Joseph is in prison. We don't know how long he's been there, and we don't know how long the cupbearer and the baker are there before they have their dream. Here are two men, uh, highly favoured by Pharaoh, or were at least, thrown into prison. Joseph is uh, given to serve them. Two important people, the cupbearer, kind of like the beef eaters of England, who would make sure that Pharaoh's food was safe to drink uh, and eat and drink, the baker in a similar way. These people that um, had the Pharaoh's best interests at heart now we're out of favour for some reason. We don't know the reason. We don't ever see them again. But here, God uses their experiences to propel the story forward and to teach us something about him. When these men get to prison, they receive preferential treatment, but they don't have wisdom. They don't know what's going to happen. And so 
God orchestrates this event where they both have dreams on the same night. Uh, the dreams are, seem to be kind of similar but have remarkably different uh, results and interpretations. Think about the wisdom of what Joseph offers here. It's interesting, Joseph also had a dream and yet his dream seems to have not come to anything yet. He doesn't say to them though, forget your dreams. I had a dream once and like, I don't trust them anymore. No, he says, I'm not an expert in dreams, but you know who is? God is. Uh, I, can, I can't figure this out, but God is the interpreter of dreams. He hasn't given up on his belief that God maybe is saying something to him and to the world. He points them to God. And in doing so, he does something very interesting culturally because both the cupbearer and the baker, as good Egyptian men, would have known that dreams had certain meanings. They might not have uh, had in prison, or it doesn't seem to be, that they would have had access to court interpreters that might have interpreted the dreams. And they were very troubled. The Bible, the narrative said that they were dejected. They looked sad. It's interesting, they weren't sad because they were in prison. Their faces weren't sad because of that, but because of the dreams and their inability to understand. On the screen, you can see a little piece of papyrus. It's uh, held in the British Museum, uh, and it was found in an area called Deir el-Medina in Egypt. It's a little bit of papyrus, a little, from a time a little bit after Joseph, but it's uh, a section of explaining what dreams mean. The Egyptians really thought that understanding dreams was important. This papyrus, for example, says, if a man sees himself in a dream looking out a window, that's good. It means that uh, the gods have heard his cry. But if a man sees himself in a dream with his bed catching fire, bad. <laughs> I could have picked that. Um, but the interpretation is that his wife is gonna run away. What does Joseph's interpretation reveal? Well, we see that Joseph, yes, he's stuck in prison, but he's still being used by God. He has no real inside knowledge about how or if he'll ever get out of prison. And he really knows nothing about the cupbearer or the baker either. But he does still know God and is willing to serve God in this way. What does he show? He shows that wisdom comes from the true God, not from Egyptian uh, rulers or other gods of Egypt, but here wisdom comes from his God, the God of the Hebrews. In doing so, he challenges not just kind of the cupbearer and baker's understanding of the world, but challenges the whole culture of their, their understanding and their perspective. Pharaoh's culture, Pharaoh's rule is not the most powerful here. The wisdom comes from God. In fact, when we read the whole story, the whole biblical narrative, we see that men chosen by God to interpret dreams challenge culture, don't they? If you think about what Daniel does later on in the Bible, challenging foreign power and reminding, as we've sung and we've prayed, God is above all gods. God, our God, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, is the God of wisdom. But this uh, mid-story uh, kind of 
episode here also teaches us something about expectations, doesn't it? The cupbearer and the baker both have expectations that their dreams will be able to be interpreted. They don't seem to question the fact that Joseph says that he'll interpret them and they don't actually question his interpretation. We don't see any of that. I don't know, if I was the baker, I'd probably ask for a second opinion. I'd be, you know, but we don't see that in the narrative. But we see there that both the cupbearer and the baker expect that Joseph might be able to give them some sort of understanding. The baker particularly expects, after he sees the favourable interpretation of the cupbearer, the baker says, oh yeah, you can do mine as well. Little does he know that that interpretation will actually impact the rest of his life. In terms of how it's written, there's some good play on words in expectations. Joseph's um, interpretations both talk about Pharaoh lifting up their heads. In the NIV, it says uh, for the baker that it will lift off their head. Um, But I've I've read that the Hebrew actually talks about lifting up off your head. Uh, Both the ideas, and when it looks at how the Pharaoh then... um, meted out his judgment, that same term, lifting up their heads. There's an expectation, isn't there, with the cupbearer and the baker that things are going to go well for them, and we see that happen with the cupbearer, but not with the baker. And then Joseph has expectations as well, doesn't he? When he interprets the cupbearer's dream, he then asks the cupbearer for kindness, for hesed, for Faithfulness, the same word that we might use for how God relates to us. He asks the cupbearer to show kindness to him. Joseph expects that the cupbearer might follow through. He's reliant on others. He wants the cupbearer to remember him. He requests that freedom, not because of uh, just the fact that he was able to interpret the dream, but that the outcome of that interpretation might be true. Did you notice that? He asks for that before it's been proven that his dream interpretation was true. He has these expectations. But when we read the rest of the chapter, those expectations don't actually meet the reality too much, do they? Joseph had this expectation that Uh, After the interpretation came through, the cupbearer would do as uh, Joseph asked and say to the Pharaoh, well, look, you know, if this guy was in prison and he explained the whole dream to me and he's great and he shouldn't be there. In fact, he was not only taken unfairly from his people but also imprisoned unfairly. This man is innocent. You should let him go. But none of that happens, at least not yet. In verse 23 of chapter 40, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. It's a double whammy here. It's not like he just uh, passively didn't remember. He actively forgot. Release, we find out, Joseph doesn't get out of prison, if you read the next verse, for another two years expectation that deliverance will come quickly or miraculously or painlessly is not met by Joseph's reality. And so what do we do? What does he do? 
I guess there's a number of different options when you have an expectation and the reality is quite different. You can just accept that there's a gap there. That's life. You can then also maybe lower your expectations. That's one way of resolving the issue. Maybe we lower our expectations by thinking, well, I was disappointed in people. Um, I shouldn't be that surprised if God disappoints me as well. Well, I shouldn't really expect God to save me. Is it right for Joseph to lower his expectations? Well, no. I think Joseph fully trusted in God, that he wanted to be released, that God had plans for him. And so if Joseph wasn't going to lower his expectations, maybe he had to change his perspective on what was reality. What was God actually doing? What was his perspective on the here and now in light of the future? And so lastly, I just want us to think about a little bit about how this chapter teaches us something about hope. Hope and expectation are different things. Hope helps us set direction in life. It comes from a basis of something that we know is real. It helps us uh, navigate those difficult situations. We don't know much about what happens between chapter 40 and 41. But when Joseph turns up, you'll look at this next week, I guess, uh, in chapter 41, we see him ready to witness again to God's power and wisdom. Joseph must have had hope that something was going to happen. And there was hope beyond the actual events of Joseph's life. Greater purpose in the narrative. As Joel said last week, Joseph's not the central character in this whole story. Joseph is part of God's big plan. The original readers of the text knew that. They knew that eventually Joseph did get out of prison. But this text was written so that they might continue to have hope. Joseph had hope that he would eventually get out. And in so doing, he kind of foreshadows a a constant desire of God's people that they might also be released. The original readers of this narrative uh, maybe were captives themselves at times. And maybe like a little bit of a babushka doll, we can see that the middle of the story of Joseph is the part of the story of God's people, part of the story of the patriarchs, part of the story of the Exodus, part of the story of uh, David, part of the story of the exile, part of the story of God's people waiting for a Messiah, waiting for release. Joseph is left behind with questions, but he still has hope. Even though God is not mentioned here, God is still present with Joseph. God is still faithful to his covenant promises, to his plans, to his people. When we see silence, we shouldn't ever underestimate what God is doing. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're part of this story as well, aren't we? We're also caught up, like Joseph in a a way, in the middle of a much bigger story. We also need hope. In our waiting, we might feel that we as well are enslaved by something, We also are waiting for God's kingdom to be fully revealed and realised. 
We are waiting for freedom from our own brokenness. We're waiting for justice and grace and mercy to be fully enacted. In some way, we also face our own crisis moments, our own points on that roller coaster where what we do and how we live and how we understand God will shape the rest of our story. And so what does Joseph's story teach me and maybe teach all of us? What does it remind me? It reminds me that God's wisdom is trustworthy. It reminds me that God's plans are faithful. It reminds me that God's presence is sure even when I don't think that uh, or see it. God is there in the midst of our world, our life, our circumstances. And it reminds me that just like Joseph, I'm part of a much bigger story. Who knows where God might use me or use you or use this church to glorify him. You know, the writers of the New Testament uh, realise that as well. And I want to finish just with a few verses that remind me and hopefully all of us about how the writers of the New Testament, particularly Paul and Peter, found themselves also caught up in this bigger story. Both Paul and Peter, who also spent time in prison, how did they think about where they were? Paul says this to the Corinthian church, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but is what, on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have, to, had, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than God, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Both Paul and Peter acknowledge that there's pain in the waiting. It's difficult to find yourself in a prison and yet we have a hope that is far greater, a hope in Christ. And so it's my prayer for all of us that we will know that hope, that we will be filled with anticipation of what God might do with the rest of our story and even though we might have to wait a long time that when God calls upon us we're ready and willing to be his servant let me pray dear heavenly father we thank you for this story and we thank you that you have allowed us to be part of our, part of this story we thank you that through Christ we know that this story will end in a way that brings you glory and honour. 
Lord, I pray for those of us who right now might be like Joseph, feeling that we're in a dungeon, not quite sure of where you are. Lord, I pray that they might know your presence and your goodness and your wisdom. And Lord, for all of us, may we continue to know the hope that comes through you, through the life, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, that one day we will join together in praise eternally. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Amen.